0: You're listening to the Sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you could stand to honor the reading of God's word, we are in the gospel of Matthew, no surprise, we're in we've been you know unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. We're now in chapter 7. We stand to honor the reading of God's word because we believe it is authoritative. Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You may be seated. So what is the most quoted verse in the Bible? Yeah. What is the second most quoted verse in the Bible? Ma- yeah, Matthew 7 verse 1, right? How many of you have heard somebody say, judge not, lest least you be judged? Right? Some other ways that you may have heard that phrase is, you have no right to what? Judge me, yeah. Who are you to judge, right? All kinds of different ways that we say it. Uh, on, on March 22nd was a Sunday, it was two Sundays basically, March, 20, March 22nd and then the 29th. I did a Q&A Sunday, which I usually do at the end of a long sermon series. We'll do that with, with you know, the Sermon on the Mount series. But on March 22nd, I took time to answer some questions. One of the questions that was asked was that question about judging, judging others. In fact, the question was, what did Jesus mean when he said, Judge not, that you be not judged? Are Christians allowed to judge others? Are we allowed to speak against immoral behaviors? And so I answered that question. I said, I'm not going to answer it too in depth because we're actually going to spend a whole uh, sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, but, but I answered that question. Uh, there are different versions of the Bible that, that word these, these, this verse a little differently. In the New American Standard Bible, it says, do not judge, comma, <laughs> well, why? So that you will not be judged. The NIV says, do not judge, comma, or... You too will be judged. And so you can read this verse and think, well, that, I guess that means that I have no right to judge anybody. I need to keep my mouth shut. Kent Hughes, who's a pastor, or was a pastor, said, made this observation on, on these verses. He said, when it comes to matters of individual morality, the world abhors opinionated people, especially if they represent conventional morality. In these matters, it adores the non-judgmental person. The ideal Christian, and especially the ideal clergyman, is an undiscerning, flabby, indulgent, all-accepting jellyfish who lives out the misinterpretation of judge not. The world adores people who are not opinionated. Why? Well, don't tell me something I don't want to hear. Like, If you tell me something I don't want to hear, you might hurt my feelings. If you hurt my feelings, if you have moral, then, then you've, you've sinned against me. You know, that's where our world is at. d. a. Carson, one of the New testament uh, I think one of the great New Testament scholars, wrote a book and it was released in two thousand and twelve, and then it was reprinted, I guess because it sold out. it was was reprinted the following year in two thousand and thirteen. The title of the book is "The Intolerance of Tolerance." And I remember I went to a conference, and he actually was speaking at the conference, and he and the topic of his of his talk it was a breakout session, was the intolerance of tolerance. And I remember thinking, yeah, I could see where the culture's going, but, uh, but I didn't quite understand how far we would go in such a short period of time. Well, he said this in, in his book. He said, neither the old tolerance nor the new is an intellectual position. Rather, each is a social response. The old tolerance is the willingness to put up with, allow, or endure people and ideas with whom we disagree. I think that's a healthy posture to have. He goes on to say, though, In its its purest form, the new tolerance is the social commitment to treat all ideas and people as equally right, save for those people who disagree with this view of tolerance. So in, in his talk at the conference and in his book, he basically is arguing that we are becoming the most, in, most intolerant culture in the name of tolerance, right? Aren't we? Like just like this, this week, uh, there's a Philadelphia Flyer. Uh, that's hockey. That's the Philadelphia team, in case you're wondering. There was a player who was Orthodox, uh Orthodox Christian, so Orthodox Catholic Christian, who refused to and he didn't make a stink of it he didn't make he, he didn't publicize it he didn't call attention to himself he just quietly refused to wear the pride jerseys that all the flyers were asked to wear during warm up and he said I just it just goes against my conscience and it's like our nation was like unhinged because of it that's the culture that we find ourselves in and and, and some of that's based on you know i mean some people's response to the, or or response to judgment is based on a misunderstanding of matthew chapter 7 judge not that you be not judged so as i was studying this this week as i was trying to figure out okay what what is jesus saying here the question you ought to have is okay jesus you say judge not least you be judged what does that mean You know, what does that mean in light of the Sermon on the Mount? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, just three paragraphs later, Jesus is going to say, watch out for false teachers. You'll know them by their fruit, which requires you to judge them, right? It requires an act of judgment. You see something in their behavior. You hear something that they say. You then have to interpret what you see and what you say and make a judgment call based on it. Like, is that what Jesus is prohibiting? And so what I'd like to do is I have two points, and, and the first point is the kind of judging that Jesus prohibits. I want to unpack that, but the way I'm going to unpack that is I'm just going to ask a bunch of questions. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions for you just to process what is it that Jesus is actually saying here. And, and so these questions that I formulated were questions that were that were shaped by Jesus' Beatitudes. Remember that? We spent a lot of time in the Beatitudes... And as I reflected on the first three Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. As I reflected on that, I I came up with five different questions as I was seeking to understand what is it that Jesus is saying here. So I'm going to ask those questions. The words will not be on the screen, but, uh, but I want you to hear it. If the Christian is a person who only became a Christian because he was fully aware of his sin and helplessness before a holy God, then how would such a person see other people? So if, you were, if, if becoming a Christian requires you to come to the cross knowing I have no righteousness in of myself that I can bring to Jesus so that he would be obligated to, to, to die for my sins or that God would be obligated to forgive my sins. I have nothing that I bring. I clearly I just come with empty hands because there's no righteousness in me, if that was my posture when I became a Christian, then, then how should I respond, or what, would, what should be the response that I would have when I see other people who are still in their sins, or a person who's caught in their sin? If the Christian is a person who grieves over his own sin, how will he feel about those living in sin? You know, In order to come to Jesus, you have to, on some level, grieve over your sin. My sin has offended a holy God. I deserve wrath. And in order for my sins to be forgiven, I need to go to the cross of Jesus Christ. So if a Christian is a person who grieves over his or her own sin, how will he feel about those living in sin? Uh, Another question is, if the Christian is a person who surrendered his pride before the cross of Christ for the purpose of dying to himself so that Christ might live through him, how will he respond to those who are still slaves to their sin? So that's the meekness part, blessed are the meek. When I come to the cross of Jesus Christ, I lay my pride before him. If the Christian is a person who has discovered that the righteousness that he hungers for is a righteousness that only Jesus can provide, then what do you think his posture will be before those who continue to seek their satisfaction in things, places, and people that do not satisfy? I mean, think about that. When you, like, that's the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will what? Be satisfied. How will they be satisfied? Jesus will satisfy them. That's how they're satisfied. And so, uh, if that is the posture of, or if that is, what, if that is the, the, the action of the Christian, when the Christian knows, I need a righteousness that is not of my own. I need an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of myself, a righteousness that only Jesus can provide. Then when you see others who are caught in their sin, how will you view that person? And fifth, if the Christian is a person who understands God as his father, the kingdom of God as his inheritance, the sufficiency of God as his satisfaction, and the mercy of God as his only hope, and the love of God as as his only security, then what response do you think he will have to those who are still caught in sin? See what I was doing there with those questions? Then after the fourth Beatitude, the fifth, sixth, and seventh Beatitudes, that that draws draws us in closer to see this thread that's woven all through Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Like in Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 through 9: Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I don't have time to unpack those. I already spent a whole sermon on each of those Beatitudes. Go look it up sometime. The manuscripts are up there, the audio is up there. But if that's the Christian, if as a result of hungering and thirsting for your righteousness that is found in uh, a righteousness that can only be found in Jesus, if the result of that, we call them Beatitudes of Action, is mercy. Is, is, a, is a pure heart. What do I mean by pure heart? A heart that desires God. And a uh, peacemaker, well, what is that? Somebody who, 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 who was encountered and has, and has been shaped by a peace that only God could provide. Then what will my response be? So the Christian is mindful of the great mercy of God that he experienced. Therefore, his posture ought to be one of what? Mercy. The Christian is a person whose hunger and thirst for righteousness is satisfied in Jesus, so he ought to view himself as, I like to use this illustration, as one spiritual beggar telling another beggar where to find food. The Christian is a person who has the peace of God. That is shalom, by the way. I've, I've said this before. I mean, I have a whole, I have two sessions in my Missio Dei course where I talk about this. I unpack this, but shalom is the only peace that you can experience when you have the presence of God. You cannot experience shalom apart from the presence of God. And so the Christian is a person who has the peace of God because he has the presence of God in the person and work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, who dwells in him. So wherever he goes, so does the presence and peace of God. So what should our response be or our posture be towards the one who's still enslaved to their sin, who does not yet know the peace of God? You answer that question, right? Think about it. So then, as I was just processing this, Christian, uh, that's who the sermon, the sermon on the Mount is addressing, the Christian. Christian, do you know what the only difference is between you and the rest of the world? How many of you would say, I'm a Christian, right? D- just about all of you. That's a rhetorical question. Uh, some of the, I mean, there have been people who have come into Meadowbrook who are not Christians and, and came to find faith in Jesus as a result. But... But most of you, if not all of you, say I'm a Christian. Do you know what the difference is between you and the rest of the unbelieving world? Good Sunday school answer, Jesus. But here's what you have in common you bear the image of the living God. Every single one of us in this room and every single human being that's born into this world bears the image of the living God. We have, like, I think. We have three, at least three women in our church family who are expecting a child. One of them may be in labor right now, like they weren't here this, in the first service. And so when that child, I mean, the child now in the womb bears the image of the living God, when the child is born, bears the image of the living God. All, we share that in common with the rest of the world. But the one thing that separates us from the rest of the world has nothing to do with anything that you've done. You are redeemed and you were purchased by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Something that God did for you out of his great love, Jesus accomplished on the cross, you had nothing to do with it. So, when we come to verse 1, going back to verse 1 here, judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. What is it that Jesus is actually saying there? Is he saying all judging is wrong? Or is he telling us there is a type of judgment that he prohibits? And I believe it's a type of judgment that he prohibits because clearly when you skip down three paragraphs in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, beware of false prophets. You know, I mean, just, this is called, John Piper calls it quarrying the text. It's just looking what's there. In the, my, the inductive Bible study course that I teach periodically here, I taught it once, we're going to teach it again, we look at what's there. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Okay, so they're disguised, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, how, Jesus, am I to beware them if they're, if they're disguised as sheep? Here, I'll tell you, Christian, you will recognize them by their what? Fruits. Oh, And then he gives some examples. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will what? recognize them by their fruits. That's how you, you, Christian, need to make a judgment call as to when you hear somebody talking, listen to what they're saying, watch their lifestyle, and then you'll be able to discern whether or not they're ravenous wolves. That's a judgment call. And if Jesus is saying no judging at all, then that makes absolutely no sense. Clearly he's not saying that. He is saying there's a type of judgment that he does prohibit. And uh, he... he um, packs that for us. The type of judgment Jesus prohibits is the hypocritical kind that condemns instead of restores. Did you hear that? It's the kind of judgment that condemns instead of restores. Where do I see that? Well, Jesus says, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. Yeah, It's the kind of judgment that assumes you know what's in that person's heart. It's the kind of judgment that postures yourself in the place of God to be able to read the thoughts and, and intentions of that person. You can ju- you can make judgments based on their fruit or whatever. But the kind of judging that Jesus prohibits is the one that condemns instead of restores. And what I mean by condemn, it's okay to tell somebody. You know, in fact, I had somebody in my office, another church, came into my office, and he left his wife. And, um, and abandoned his stepchild, and I ran into him. Some of you heard the story. Uh, and he, <laughs> it was an event at the church building. There was a secular event at the church building. He happened to be there. We ran into each other, and he said, oh, hi. It was very awkward. And uh, I'll just leave him a name, but I said, you and I need to talk. And he said, okay, when would you like to talk? How about now? <laughs> so we went into in my office, and I said, I said to him, I said, What you did to your wife and your stepson is deplorable. You call yourself a Christian. And my encouragement to you is to examine your heart to see whether or not you believed in vain. I mean, that's language right out of the New Testament. Like, you can encourage somebody to examine their hearts. You can encourage somebody, dude, your life does not line up with what Jesus calls us to. There's something off there. But it's a, it's a judgment that aims to restore, not to, de- not, not to make that person feel less than you. Have you ever met somebody like in the church or a Christian who just had a way of making you feel like less of a Christian or smaller than them? Like They appear that they've got it all together, that they're holier than everybody else, and, and you're like, man, I, I, I just don't measure up. Have you ever encountered that person? Where they've got it all nailed down, they have a corner uh, on, on all theology, and, and they make it a point that you understand that they got a leg up on you spiritually. Like, that's the kind of judging Jesus condemns. Uh, and, and, and so he goes on, he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? And it's comical. Like, this, like probably those who heard Jesus say this probably chuckled. I mean, if you can picture it. Why are you calling out the speck in your brother's eye and you got this plank in your own eye? So he says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. All right, so then he goes, uh, "You know." as we contemplate that, think about this. Think about the judgment that, that we all deserve, right? There's a judgment that we all deserve. It, it's a condemning judgment for sins that we're guilty of and that judgment, Christian, did not fall upon you, but fell upon who? Jesus. It fell upon Jesus. We are the recipients of, some, of amazing mercy and grace. I've said before that, that God's grace and his mercy is greater than any sin that you are potentially guilty of. For your sin to be forgiven, though, you had to come to terms with the seriousness of your sin. If you're a Christian, at one point in your life, and you continue to do this, you you had to come to terms, and you continue to come to terms with the seriousness of your sin. Why do you know that it was serious? Because Jesus was slaughtered on a cross in your place and in my place. Literally, Isaiah 53 says it was God's pleasure, it was his will to crush him. That's in Isaiah 53, I think, verse 10. And so we are the recipients of amazing grace. But what Jesus is condemning is the kind of judgment that would place yourself better than the person you are judging. Which leads to the second point, the kind of judgment that condemns. Clearly, Jesus is saying here, there is a judgment that if you execute it, you will find yourself being judged in like manner. There is a worse kind of judgment than just the person who's hypocritical it's the kind of judgment that um, it, where it's, the pride is at its root. Think about the person with the plank in his eye. And he's pointing out the speck in the, at the other person's eye. What is the root cause of that? It's pride. There's nothing wrong with me. But I see this little thing in your life that I, I need to take out of your eye. The root cause of that is pride. Sinclair Ferguson says this, and I, I think it's so good. He says... He said, so deeply has his sin, talking about the guy with the plank in his eye, so deeply has his sin conquered him that he has become blind to it. Sensitive to sin in others, he has been desensitized to the sin in his own heart. You hear that? The only reason why you would not notice that you have a plank, a tree, a log in your eye is because you became desensitized to it. You don't even see that it's there. So literally, Jesus says, why do you see the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not contemplate the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? It would be the equivalent of this. If you had, how many of you have ever had cataract surgery? It would be probably the older, or older brothers and sisters, right? Uh, young people, it's coming. <laughs> Just wait, it's coming. I went to the eye doctor this week. I didn't think I needed glasses to read. Uh, in fact, they offered. I thought they were selling me something. They're like, do you want us to check your, to, your vision in terms of reading? Do you read a lot? I'm like, well, yes, I'm a pastor. I read lots. Would you, would you like us to check your vision? I don't think I need you to check my vision. Well, maybe we should check just in case. And so they did. And a night and day difference. I'm like, wow, I can actually, this is amazing. I could see much more clear. And, and so, so, and then they encouraged me with these words. Yeah, usually at the age of 40, your, your, your far vision starts to deteriorate. You're 48, so congratulations, but now you need glasses. Not only do you need glasses to see, thing, see things in the distance, you need glasses to be able to read. So soon and very soon, I will be wearing glasses when I preach. But, but imagine if you had cataracts, and you just your vision was kind of blurry. You, could, you, know, you, can get, you can get by with them in there, but you need something done. Yeah, and it's surgery. What if you had a blind surgeon, eye surgeon, come into your room and say, you need cataract surgery. Good news is I'm here to do it. What would you say? Uh, eh, wrong answer. <laughs> that's, the, that's what Jesus is saying here. It's like, how can a person with a pl- who's so desensitized to their sin be able to help the person who, who, who's got a... Uh, you know, some, some sin that they're dealing with. Like, how, how can you help that person when you're desensitized to your own sin? First, address the sin in your life. What is he saying? He's saying, do some self-reflection. Examine your heart. You know, contemplate the seriousness of your sin. Address it. And then you'll be able to help others. I, I shared this story in the first service. When I first arrived at Meadowbrook, there was a couple, they were living together, they weren't married, and it was an abusive situation. He graduated from a Bible school and, and, and pretty much knew the Bible chapter and verse, and literally there was this cycle where uh, about once a year, he would beat the tar out of her, and so they, so, yeah, be, before me, they met with uh, Dan, Dan told them the same thing you know, I told them, there's you're, one. You're together in the same house. You shouldn't be. Like that's a sin. And then and then you're just toxic for each other. And, I, and you know, he was known for being for, for his views on politics, very conservative. You know, angry about the direction of the country. But literally could not keep his hands off of his girlfriend. And I get a call uh, at night. It was a couple years ago, I think it was. And she, it was her. It was a female, and she was crying. He had just—she had to call the cops because he literally put her through a window, and she felt guilty about calling the cops. And I said, "There are a number of things I said. I said, uh, one, you shouldn't—you have no reason to feel guilty. He's just one step closer to literally killing you." And so then, so then, you know, he, there are charges who were pressed on him, and before I believe he went to jail. But before he went to jail, he came into my office and was lamenting about these false accusations she made against him. And I said, if you put your hands on her, you deserve to go to jail. You know, and, and that was it. He had a pretty huge plank in his eye. I'm not even sure he's a Christian, to be honest with you. But leading up to that, I was praying, Lord, discipline this man. Let me move on. That's not in my manuscript. So Jesus is condemning the kind of judgment that seeks to destroy rather than restore my guess is that on some level you've encountered somebody who did a really good job at, at destroying instead of restoring. And the kind of judgment that God calls us to is the kind that restores. So when you call somebody out for for sin in their life, which we do have a responsibility to do, I'll share a scripture passage with you in a second. We do that with love and grace and compassion and as one who understands our own sin and is able to see clearly through eyes of compassion because we had to deal with the plank in our own eye first. And, and, and so that's what Jesus is getting at here. And, and so verse 5, Jesus had strong language for hypocrites. So he says, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And, and, and so the kind of ju- this is the kind of judgment Jesus is addressing. Um, The kind of judgment we should be responsible for is the one that restores. There's a a verse in Galatians uh, chapter uh, 6. Let's read this together. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's a much better judgment than the kind of judgment that seeks to destroy a person, right? Like who would you rather have? Somebody who comes alongside of you, who loves you enough to speak truth in your life, but will do anything and everything that they are able to to help you be restored, right? Like that's the kind of brother or sister in Christ I want in my life. And so, after addressing, you know, our sin with clear, self-judged eyes and motivated by compassion and love, we can we can point out the speck in another person's eye. And then Jesus says this, and I'm going to have uh, Claire and Austin come up and share their story. Jesus shares uh, this, this verse. Like, we're wondering, okay, verse 6 seems out of place. Why? Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, one, do, do pigs understand any value about pearls? No, right? This is just, like, Jesus is clearly making obvious statements. And he's not talking about, you know, Fido in your house, your pet dog who's nice and maybe occasionally gets into the chocolate or the trash. He's talking about the stray wild dogs. If you go to try to feed that dog, uh, you're most likely going to get bit. Or it's going to want something more than what you're offering that dog. And so uh, Jesus is saying here, when it comes to the gospel, listen, I want you to hear this, the gospel that has a way of Destroying our pride, shattering our pride, because that's what's required to come to the cross, and redeeming and restoring us into the kind of people that we were born to be. This gospel is hated by the world. And so there are two kinds of people Jesus is addressing here there's the person who hates the gospel, and wants nothing to do with the gospel, and so when you try to, when you give them the gospel, and they reject it. There's so many. There's only so many times you're. you're you should try to do that. At some point, you, you just like Jesus said, "Dust the sand, the dust off of your sandals." Continue to pray for them, but but time is short. Life is short. Use your time wisely. Share the gospel with others who will be receptive to the gospel. And then there's the other person who who you know, may claim to be a follower of Jesus, may claim to love God, but has no desire to repent of their sins, has no desire to change. And I've had people come into my office who I would sit down with and talk to and, and spend time with. At, at a certain point, I had to say to them, until you're ready to repent of your sin, I am not going to meet with you. And, uh, and then they wind up not coming back. They find another pastor to listen to them. Uh, and so that's what I said to this guy who walked out on his, his, his wife and his, his child. I wouldn't do their wedding because I, I, he was a pot-smoking 40-year-old who, and I was in my 20s, who, who didn't want to grow up. And, uh, and so I said, you guys shouldn't get married. So they found another pastor to, get to marry them, and then he walked out on them, and, you know, the rest is history. Somebody said this, and Austin and Claire, you can come up. Somebody said to me once about helping others, you, and it's such good advice, it's not true 100% of the time, but I would say it's true 98%, you can move around this side. it's true like 98% of the time. He said, you cannot work harder than the person you're trying to help. I mean, think about that. A person's got to want to change if you're going to be able to help them. And you cannot work harder than the person you're trying to help. So, yeah i just thought, in light of this passage and just you know we need jesus and the result of encountering jesus should result, should shape the way we view others there was a question that was asked i mentioned it at the beginning of the sermon and it was about judging and i don't re- i don't remember austin and claire being in the service just sometimes i i don't see all of you and uh, but they were there when I, was, when I was answering that question. So I thought, hey, would you guys, one, Metabrook needs to hear your story, and two, would you be willing to share your story instead of me always telling people about your story? Because I think it's awesome. So I thought you guys could share. So tell me a little bit, like, that service, you were in the back, mm-hmm. you're a note-taker,
1: yeah.
0: from what I learned, and you were taking notes, and then what happened?
1: <laughs> uh, you were preaching Matthew 7, and you had made an analogy from about judgment on how, you know, if you're a, a couple who is living together out of wedlock, how can you sit there and pass judgment on a homosexual couple who is, you know, their marriage is governed by law and, and. but so I had shut my notebook and this like cloud of guilt had, had came over me and, and we, we, had to go home and have a very serious conversation about what we were doing and what we wanted and where we wanted to go. And
0: yeah, I was, uh, yeah, the illustration I was using was just, and I've heard, I've heard, I've I've seen this and experienced this with couples. A heterosexual Christian couple who are living together, having sex, not married, in the same you know in the same house, who are quick to point their finger at the homosexual couple whose marriage is sanctioned by the government. Both are sins. That's what, I mean, I made that very clear. Both mm-hmm. are sins. But what Jesus is addressing here is hypocrisy. And so, so yeah, so, so I mentioned that, and you were taking notes, and you closed your notebook, and you were I took listening.
1: took a, a real hard look at myself and, mm. and what we were doing. And we had known it wasn't right, but to hear it from somebody else really put the weight on our shoulders. I mean, not only from you, but from God. You know, it was... Yeah. It was a huge act from the Holy Spirit.
0: There's a verse in Hebrews that says that God disciplines those He loves, and there was a conviction there that this, you know the Bible says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Like when the Holy Spirit's grieved, like you and I think that's what you were you were experiencing, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. just this, you had this wave of going, you know, ugh, I feel horrible about my situation right now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that was the Holy Spirit. So so then. So then you leave, you, leave the, you leave the church service after it was over. You, you go home, and then what happened?
1: We had a, a very long conversation with each other, very emotional, very honest and open. And we decided that we no longer wanted to continue down the path that we were on. So I made a just under a three-hour round trip to Colorado to her parents' house to get their blessing for her hand in marriage and came back and that night we were engaged and two weeks later we were married.
0: Yeah so I want you to hear from Claire because like yeah two weeks later there's a lot that happened in those two weeks though so so that was on a Sunday the 22nd and then that Tuesday I get a phone call from you and and all I hear is Pastor Keith you'll never guess God used you to speak to us. So just share that with us.
2: So that Sunday, God spoke to us loud, very loud. Um, And so I'm blessed to have um, a Bible study group that um, my landlord was, uh, thankfully, she was in, and she's renting to us. She knew that we weren't married. Um, And I called her and I said, why did you let us move in together um, knowing that this is not what God had wanted for us? This is not something that the Holy Spirit intended for um, Christian couples. She said, well, it's not my place. Um, So later that day, um, we talked about it and he had just gotten a job here. So he wasn't moving. I was, (laughs) and I'm blessed to have such a wonderful, lovely sister that allowed me to move in with her and her husband into their house in Greeley. And so we spent two weeks apart, and I called Pastor Keith, and I said... On Tuesday. Yes. <laughs> so that Sunday and then that Tuesday, I called Pastor Keith, and I said, I have a mission for you. <laughs> can, you get, can you marry us? And I know that um, you have the premarital counseling as well, and we're doing, willing to do whatever it takes for us to get married and be shameless in the eyes of God. So
0: So at that point, I'm looking at my calendar. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh... And then I, and I asked her, so when, when that's awesome. I'm so, so encouraged by what God is doing in your life. When, when do you want to get married? And then she tells me, what was the date?
2: Um, April 11th. Yeah, April 11th. So,
0: so, so that Tuesday, and I, I'm like, oh my. Uh, and then I asked, well, well what venue are you going to use? Like, like, where are you going to get married? And,
2: and so, um, like I said, our Bible study group, um, we're so blessed because we got married at their house. <laughs> and, and who's um, your life group leaders, by the way? Yeah. Um, uh, the Mur- Jim and Jean Murphy. Yeah. And um, they were gracious enough to let us use their house as our wedding venue. And um, I told Pastor Keith, I said, we're getting married at somebody's house. <laughs> yeah. And
0: I'm like, okay, well, that settles yeah. <laughs> the venue part. So yeah. I thought, well, okay, we'll make it work. So, we'll do two weeks of premarital counseling, and we'll just do the stuff that I think is really important before you actually exchange vows, and then we'll do two weeks of post-premarital counseling. Yeah. <laughs> and we did that. We completed yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, it was... There was uh, the house was packed, and uh, it was one of the highlights of my pastoral like c- career life ministry was, was that day. I, uh, it was a first. I, I could For never... Us too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but it was it was fantastic. Here, here's one of the reasons why I want you to hear their story. Is because sometimes when you're when you're in sin, or when you're when you're you've been kind of living a certain way, the enemy, or maybe even your own flesh, will convince you to think that the risk is too great to make any changes. You're going to lose this person. you the relationship will, will never be the same. Uh, you know it's too costly. Don't do it. But Jesus said something, and I, I forgot to mention this in the first service. He said in, Ma- in Luke chapter f- uh, 14 that anybody who wants to come after me must take up the cross and follow me and hate mother and father and blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a whole list. He didn't say hate them, hate them. Just everything becomes a distant second. Mm-hmm. And what's encouraging about your story is like you heard, the easy thing would have been yeah, I felt sucky that Sunday, but we'll just kind of grin and bear it. Mm-hmm. That some couples do that. But you guys didn't do that. You're like, God is speaking to us. We need to make a change. So you you make a three-hour round trip that day. Obviously, they said yes. I mean, and they come back. You propose. Didn't you propose like in the uh, one of the parks? Yeah. uh,
1: In front of the the amphitheater. Yeah. And uh, what was cool was as after I had proposed and we were celebrating, you know, and we we looked. Yeah. She we yes, looked at that. the at the steps, and as you know, the day began, we were feeling guilty. But as we were ending our day on the steps, somebody had wrote, God loves you." Oh well. And so it was just like a huge yeah. like a sigh of relief. You know, it was a
0: that's awesome a
1: huge God thing.
0: That's one of the, like I often say, like the Bible is not God's method to kill your joy; it's to maximize it. Like he wants life for you, and that's what you guys were, you know, experiencing. And so, you know, I, I will say, and the worship team can come up, and we'll just close on a song. Yeah, you can clap. It's awesome. um, you guys can go down. Yeah, I, uh, God, God will, you know, maximize. He wants to maximize your joy. Uh, that. Sometimes I'll have couples coming in the office who are not married and are thinking about marriage, and I'll ask them. I'll, I just, I'm pretty blunt, and I'll just ask them, like, are you guys sleeping together? Are you having sex before marriage? And sometimes they'll say yes. So, and then, so then I follow up with a question, how does that make you feel? Like, horrible. So, Do you know what that is? And they're like, what? What is that? That's the Holy Spirit. And you know what he's saying? What is he saying? Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on I'll hold you accountable through the premarital counseling you can go home and pray about it if you want me to do your wedding but, um, but God wants life for you he doesn't want death and this will just lead to death you know, if you continue the way that you're going spiritual death and so he wants life for you so we're going to sing a song Ryan's going to lead us and, and, uh, and I'll just come up and conclude our time in prayer thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church
2: Podcast For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.